This is The Meek Informant, your content source for Legend of the Five Rings, published by Fantasy Flight Games. We are an L5R fan-focused group of gamers delivering community-building content via podcasts, live streams, and YouTube videos. Enjoy the show, and remember, samurai seldom notice peasants. Peasants always notice samurai. Welcome to episode two of the Meek Informant. I'm Eric, your host, and I'm joined today by Adam, Nick, and Johnny. You guys, thanks for joining. I should clarify, I said, I'm your host and joined by these guys, but that's not cool. They're all hosts. We're all in it together. So a couple things before we start the show today, uh, I wanted to mention a few things. One, I want to thank and credit Graham Carlson of the Shipment from Shiloh podcast for Netrunner that has since ceased to exist, but I think Graham's gone on to a podcast about Arkham Horror, possibly. Uh, I have to check into that, but but check it out uh, if you're interested in Netrunner. Shipment from Shiloh was an awesome community building based podcast. So thank you to Graham for the idea to start this podcast. Secondly, we're, we're on iTunes now. It took like a week of going back and forth with iTunes ticketing to find out that the metadata tags for the, the podcast were wrong and they did not like that. So that's all fixed now. We're on there. You should be able to get to us from the iTunes podcast app, anywhere that goes to iTunes. And the, the response that we've gotten from our first episode from the community is, has been awesome. We had like 170 downloads in less than a week, which was pretty cool. I uh, wasn't really expecting anybody to listen to this, so that's that's awesome. Uh, I was actually on Jagogu playing a, a game of L5R the other night, and I looked up, and the person I was playing against, his, his name was Remedy. And I was like, oh, I recognize that name. Hey, that's Glenn from uh, the Hidden City Roller Derby guys. So he and I chatted, and he was like, oh, we were, we were talking about your podcast last night. So thanks for the shout-out and the mention on the on your podcast hidden city roller derby guys that was awesome in addition thanks to the new england any l5r podcast folks for their shout out high five new england represent um and last but not least on the updates front i've been working on the graphics so so i've been working on some some graphic overlays for the video content that we have and you might recognize something similar on um, vttv's um, youtube channel they do a lot of the similar kind of thing where they have you know player information displayed on their videos and um, cards come in and out on call um, so for reference and so thank you to, to those guys who have been helping me out with some of the code and to dodgepong dodgepong not sure how how he intends that to be read uh, the guy who ran peach hack for netrunner they've been really helpful so that's that uh last time we said we are going to talk about advice to experienced players on the do's and don'ts of like teaching new players and getting them into the game. And I think that we, we didn't actually end up doing that. So I think that we should want, we want to cover that before we move on to today's main um, focus, which is going to be going over choosing a clan. Uh, I think maybe Adam, do you want to start talking about maybe the do's and don'ts of uh, teaching a new player as an experienced player? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's nice to be back too. I agree. Uh, everything with the, the the warm welcome to the community has been great. So uh, happy to get second episode out here. 
Uh, hopefully my voice is a little bit better last week. I think I had a cold, so maybe this week it'll be a little less hoarse. Uh, so yeah, do's and don'ts. Uh, I think this is probably one of the big things that makes it uh, kind of a difficult game to to sell to other people, but it's kind of important. You know, this, this game is, this game is complex. It's got a lot of things going on and uh, it's got, it's got this great narrative element to it. So I think, you know, if, if you have any knowledge of the lore and the background of this game, it's probably uh, behooves you to take advantage of that. So uh, one of the things we've kind of noted uh, for ourselves is that it's important to, do the narrative thing, right? Everything you're doing is trying to explain how the game unfolds and, and kind of give give the player you're playing with the ability to uh, see, see why the, the characters they're, they're playing with are interesting and exciting. So, uh, you know, do a little bit of the, as, as characters come out into play on provinces, talk about why they might be interested in purchasing them and putting them into play and uh, why they might be helpful as the, the game progresses. Uh, what, what do you guys think? Is that is that kind of an important? I I, I think we have here as as the narrative element is, is a number one thing, but um, I think from a new player perspective, it kind of hooks people in is to kind of say, oh, why is Mitsu so cool? Well, yeah, he has this really really great ability, but he also has this kind of really flavorful text on his card. So, uh, is that, what do you guys think? Does he have name? He has text on his card besides like his ability. Well, his ability is his flavorful text, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was, but does but he I mean have flavor text. Yeah, I mean, think about it. He's like pulling cards out of this discard pile, and they'll play. Oh, sure, yeah, play. No, thematically, why he makes sense. No, I thought you meant that there was good flavor text, and I was like, oh shit, what's what's his good flavor text? Uh, his flavor text is uh, invisible there, just because he's just such a cool yeah. card. It's, got, it's the word covert. That's why he's so flavorful, right? You know, <laughs> yep, yeah, the guy in the yard who's breathing fire. Yep, yeah, yeah I mean, for covert, right? I mean, he's breathing fire, but like, I do think he epitomizes sort of the the dragon, the dragon's play style a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. big monk I mean, says the smash. dragon player. <laughs> big monk yeah. smash. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very calm and collected. Yeah, yeah. He's my bro. I love that guy. Um, <laughs> so one thing I want to stress that people should do, and this is just general like game teaching advice, is narrate everything you're doing. And like explain, like when you take an action, or b- before you take an action, like, okay, it's my turn. I have these characters I can buy, I could buy you know, Tagashi Mitsu, and he's really great, but I don't really have enough money to buy him and have him keep around for a while. So I'm probably going to pass on that. I think maybe I'll just, you know, like that kind of a thing, talk through like your thought process um, and just to be, be an open book uh, for the players that you're, you're playing against because you're not in it to beat them, right? You just, you want them to start to understand a little bit of like what you're, why are you doing the things you're doing? Yeah, I think that's probably just good advice generally in this game for the first like five or 10 games or so. I mean, people are just not going to know what's going on. They're not going to know all of the cards. So just talking about, okay, here's what, what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it is probably better than just explaining the rules and and playing a bunch of times because they're not, yeah, it gives people a window into how somebody who's more experienced thinks about the game. Yeah, cool. Uh, so I think the next bullet point we have here is whether or not to come with a so-called tier one, tier zero deck. And uh, it's pretty uh, pretty unanimous that I think we all agree you don't do that. Uh, you don't need to give your opponent that deck, and you don't need to necessarily at all play with a deck that is kind of like the top tier deck. Uh, play something that's fun. Play something that's a little flavorful. Show them the exciting elements of building a little bit something different as a deck. And in this kind of 
plays upon uh, the first bullet point we had, which was to talk through things is with a deck like this, you have a little bit more opportunity to actually talk about why you're playing this character and, and kind of, uh, just exemplify the world of Rokugan. Uh, we have a local guy, Dave. Uh, he plays that, that he calls it the, uh, the swim team scorpion deck. And yeah, it's got, it's got the, I can swim and all that kind of scorpion stuff in it, but it also has the Shugenjas and he has a reason for why he plays everything. And he, he, he can talk through why that deck is, is fun and why he's buying and purchasing certain characters and playing certain cards. Uh, and I think that's a lot of fun for both. Even if you're playing later on in a more uh, casual environment, with players beyond just the, the learning element. Uh, and so I think those non-tier one, tier zero decks are kind of the best place to showcase the game to, to new players. Yeah, and one of the uh, other options, like uh, actually, I think this is Dave's suggestion too, uh, but was to uh, just play a corset unicorn deck. It's a deck where you can play a ton of cards and you've got a lot of explanation points for uh the person you know where they can see what you're doing and what you're doing is like big and flashy and cool and at the end of it they're going to win because you're playing corset unicorn yeah so. you just get to lose <laughs> uh, since we're speaking about dave dave if you're listening to this next time that you play the second game against a new player that they ever play don't break three provinces with unicorn on turn one and make their face melt off thanks Listen, sometimes you get that high roll and it is just irresistible. He had to do it. I think it's just a a product of realizing recently that Unicorn is capable of winning games and getting overexcited. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Next bullet point here. I I guess it is an easy one to say, but it's it's important, is be patient. Uh, These games take a long time. And I think a new player needs to be given the opportunity to kind of talk through what they're thinking so that they, excuse me, so that they can understand uh, why they are making or not making the right choices. Uh, and, and actually walk through those those kind of decision points. You don't need to go through all of the decision trees because that could take forever in L5R, but you know, be patient. Let them let them talk about what they're thinking about doing, and uh, show why the path they might be taking could be easily stopped by what you have available to you. And that's important because they're not going to know what cards you have, and they're not going to know what every clan does. And we're hoping in the rest of this episode to talk a little bit about that and give people the idea of what each clan does at a high level. But uh, a new player that you're showing the game to isn't going to know that you can kill somebody with a, a crane card through honor and dishonor through something like noble sack or i can swim existing so you just got to kind of give them those little tidbits of information and be patient as they learn and ex- experience that element of the game so patience is important a two-hour game probably for l5r as the first game is is probably what you should set aside for a new player if you're going to be showing somebody the game for the first time agree cool all right, next one is, uh, this one is a tough one, I think, but uh, don't give advice unless they ask for it. I think this is the opposite of the the patient thing is that you kind of have to give advice, but not go crazy. And at some point, someone's going to say they just want to figure it out and you just got to be patient with them and let them figure it out. If you do have that I can swim card and they've already, you've already explained to them once, like just go ahead and use it. Don't, don't go too soft on them. They got to learn how the game plays. So uh, give them some advice and and let them see how it plays because they might walk up to somebody else that uh, doesn't know that they're new (laughs) the next game and and kind of get unicorn stomped. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I'll offer, if I see somebody's like, their brain is 
smoking on the other side of the table, I'll, I'll offer, I'll say, you know, would you like to know uh, what I might be thinking uh, through on uh, on your turn? You know, like if they're sitting there wondering what ring do I choose here on their first ever conflict, I, I can say, hey, would you like me to point out what rings are maybe good for you in this situation? But besides that, I, I don't like to step in because people people learn by doing, right? Yeah, definitely. All right, so the next one we have here is the I call them the I guess the idiosyncrasies of the game, which are all of the action windows, triggers, and 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 whatnot, the reactions, interrupts, all that good stuff. I think this is actually an important one for both new players and and uh, players that you're playing with that are experienced while you're in your normal gaming night. Maybe not so much during, say, a tournament. But uh, as the opportunity for a trigger is available, you probably want to ask them if they want to use it because at some point they want to become a good player that will never forget those. And those triggers are important for kind of leveling them up on the play scale, uh, the the ability to be kind of a, a better player at this game. So as an example would be a Seeker Fate, right? If you're playing... Uh, let's say Seeker of Air and something like Manicure Garden comes up uh, or they're playing Seeker of Air and their Manicure Gar- Gardens comes up, you want to make sure to tell them, hey, this is a chance for you to use your, your ability off of your Seeker roll to get an extra fate. And you definitely don't want to let them forget that. I think it's important to remind them that that's something that, that comes up. And, and it also exemplifies the fact that there are a lot of small little action windows in this game and it gives them a realistic expectation that if they're going to buy into this game, that they have to kind of always be aware of what's going on. I think that's kind of one of the bonuses of this game is that you're always involved, you're always aware, you always have to pay attention because the board state is constantly changing. Uh, It's not like a lot of other games where you just let things happen and all of a sudden you get a decision point. Almost at every moment of this game, you have a decision point because you're always reacting or taking an action after after your opponent has. Yeah, and I think uh, Jigoku enables us as new players to forget some of those action windows and some of those reactions. Uh, My second tournament game, my first tournament game was against Eric, and uh, it was also his first tournament game. But my second game was against, uh, I think, one of the the better Scorpion players in New England, Ian. And I played out a Goblin Sneak and didn't take, didn't add the fade onto it because I'm used to Jigoku just popping up and saying, do you want to put a fade on it? And I remembered it about 15 seconds later. And he was like, nope, not in a tournament. Remember it next time. Right. Cold. And you never forgot again. And it's cold, but at that point, you kind of bought into the fact that you're playing a tournament. And yes, you did forget it. But, you know, from a new player perspective, I think when you're teaching somebody, you definitely want to emphasize those those steps and those elements because most good players aren't going to forget that, right? You're not going to forget that you spent two on a Goblin Sneak and you didn't get the one fate from your opponent. <laughs> That's kind of the whole point of the card. I, however, will forget uh, to take Seeker Fate all the f- all the time. And also, if I ever play a Keeper role, I'm pretty sure I've never collected the Fate ever for for defending the ring successfully. I've never done. <laughs> I got one today. I was so proud. I actually remembered it. It was great. <laughs> Nick just came. He's fresh off a tournament. I don't know how you're still standing, man. Well, I'm sitting, so that helps. That's oh, <laughs> moving on. All right, cool. So uh, I guess we've got a couple more here, and then we can move on to the little uh, clan overviews. Uh, The next one is working through funny rules. Uh, This 
definitely is a follow on to the last one, which is the whole, you know, don't let them forget triggers and things that happen because of cards chosen. But there are little funny rules, and we have here noted uh, shameful display being one and, and how that works. Kind of talk through that. Um, I'm going to caveat that with that the, the idea that don't go too deep into the funny rules descriptions. Just say what the result is. Work through the funny rules with them and explain what the result's going to be. Don't spend a half an hour talking about why shameful display lets you honor one guy and not dishonor somebody else even though there's a target and all this kind of stuff Um, because i think that that can kind of bog down the experience for for people Um, but it's important to to say why they might want to choose or kind of use the shameful display in a certain way uh, because it it affects the board state for their advantage all right no no other input there so okay (laughs) i guess we have a full agreement all right uh so we talked about no not giving a rules dissertation and kind of waiting to do that for later uh definitely point people to the rules reference guide after a game i think you know you're going to talk through stuff but probably after you do that that game talk afterwards is probably a good idea to say the rules reference guide does exist if they are interested in understanding any of the finicky kind of bits of the rules give them a couple of examples of weird rules so uh, yeah the game is complex don't let them get bogged down show them the rules reference guide and uh, make sure they have fun the uh, the other one that I'd like to mention uh, is called A Deck of Five Rings. It's actually an app. I think it's on both Apple and Android. I have it on Android anyway. But that has um, a searchable database of all the cards, uh, and it has the rulings for individual cards kind of like attached to them. So you can say, all right, well, this is a military conflict. Can I use charge to bring in a character with a dash military skill just to get them out on the board? Uh, and that will tell you that you can't, and it will tell you why right under charge. So uh, that's pretty great. It also has uh, all the timing for the rules. Uh, So it's kind of like a one-stop shop just in your pocket for all the weird uh, bits of rules uh, that, you know, kind of edge cases and things you might not remember off the top of your head. Now that we've gone through some of the do's and don'ts, let's get into uh, what we said we were here to talk about, which is uh, how to pick a clan. So when you first get into to L5R, you've got seven clans to choose from. I know I just played a handful of games with random clans. And uh, at some point I said, you know, I want to pick one and I want to get good at it. There's a few ways you can do that. Uh, there's probably more than what we're going to list here. But, uh, you know, one of the ways is uh, let the lore speak to you. Um, that was how I did it. I went in and I read everything that was out. And uh, I got drawn in by the unicorn story. I was really interested in it. I also did some research on the mechanics of each of the clans and how they play. Uh, Eric, who I've been playing games with for for many years, can attest that I like to have a trick up my sleeve. Um, I like to to get that sneak win at the end He's of a game a when nobody expects it. And, uh, when I heard that Unicorn has all these movement tricks and uh, is unpredictable, uh, that also spoke to me. And so uh, you can let the lore and or the mechanics, uh, maybe both, uh, speak to you in terms of what clan uh, you may enjoy. Uh, I know Eric chose his based on the fact that there weren't a lot of dragon players in our local meta, and he wanted to to represent a clan that maybe didn't have a lot of representation in our area. And uh, I'm sure there are other ways if you guys want to jump in. You know, how did you pick your clans? You did mine, but I called you a dick in love. 
<laughs> I guess I have. I can do mine. Uh, so for me, Scorpion just seemed to exemplify the way I like to play games, which you say like trick up your sleeve type of thing. Uh, I like to manipulate the environment in most of my games in a way that is sort of sideways. And I feel like Scorpion definitely had that ambiance, at least when I originally had read uh, back in, when the, the game first released, Core, core Set Side. Uh, and then, you know, reading all the cards at the time, you know, blackmail and things like that. And uh, it just sort of, it sort of, uh, lent itself to to my play style. Uh, come to find out, it ended up being one of the stronger out of the out of the core box clans. Uh, but I stuck with it, and now I'm dealing with the the swing of the pendulum, I guess they say. So uh, yeah, for me, it was it was more or less the the style of the cards, the way they seem to play. That that I didn't have a lot of flashy fighting and, and stuff like that from my characters that are my dynasty side, and it uh, it was more about playing as so called tricks from the conflict side. Sidebar: Have you blackmailed successfully a whole lot in this game? Uh, in core set, yeah, but not not <laughs> worth it now. Like core set, it was actually quite fun. <laughs> no, I get to see someone blackmail me. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I actually ended up picking my clan uh, like 19 years ago. At this point, I actually had to look it up to see. Uh, so I started out playing the old game, and uh, somebody handed me a uh, Brotherhood of Shinsei deck, which at the time was a relatively aggressive break your provinces. It was a whole bunch of monks and kihos and cool stuff like that. Uh, but I didn't care. I just looked at the fact that uh, all the characters had like two or more personal honor and was like, oh, I don't have to fight at all to win this game. I can just keep buying dudes and eventually hit 40 honor. Uh, so after about two games of me uh, falling flat on my face trying to do that with an aggro deck, uh, somebody handed me a crane deck and I've been stuck on Crane ever since. Uh, weirdly, because this game doesn't have uh, the same type of mechanics where you can just sit around doing nothing and eventually win the game. Uh, yeah, Old Elfire was great. Uh, I have gotten more into the Crane lore side uh, since this came out, um, just because it's, yeah, that I, I still have that tie to the clan. But uh, the mechanics that I loved so much in my uh, terrible old decks aren't there in the new game. So that's basically, yeah. Been craned for 20 years. I'm not going anywhere. So did you have any, you didn't have any like question when the new new L5R came out, whether or not you wanted to hop? Because clan, clan loyalty is like a big, big thing. And I think with the CCG, it made more sense to me anyway, that somebody might be loyal for a long time because it was hard to get the cards and expensive, I, you know, right? CCG style, you had to like get them and trade for them and, and all that. And I imagine it would cost more money than with now with the living card game model, you can just, you just have everything. So. Yeah. And like you used to get locked into because like you'd split a box of boosters with a friend or something and, you know, they'd get all the lion cards and you'd get all the crane cards and you'd fight over the Phoenix cards or whatever it was. But so your actual card pool was more limited, but it, yeah, I don't know. I just have been, have been attached to the crane clan for so long in this, in various uh, versions of the role-playing game and things like that, that, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just stuck with it. So. Awesome. So, uh, so that's our stories on how we picked our clan. And uh, I know that one of the things that we wanted to mention in this is that some some people will say, try an easy clan. Scorpion is is too hard. You have to you have to plan too far in advance. You need to know a lot of the cards. You can't just jump in as a beginner player and play Scorpion. And uh, if somebody says that to you, I'd counter with, don't worry about whether it's it's going to be 
uh, difficult clan to play or not. Play what sounds like it's going to be the most interesting to you because I think that's going to give you the best opportunity to have fun playing the scheme. And you're going to lose a lot in the beginning anyways, so it doesn't really matter if you're playing a clan that's difficult to grasp or not. Would yeah, you guys you, agree with that? If you play the same clan, like, I don't know, five or ten times, you're going to start to figure it out, and people will help you get there. So just start with whatever you want to start with and stick with it for a while, and then you'll get there, I think. All right, so uh, why don't we jump right into it? And uh, Nick is going to uh, introduce us to Rokugan and some of the lore. And just as a disclaimer, we are going to try to keep this spoiler-free for the most part, out of respect for anybody that wants to go through and explore the lore on their own. Uh, so we're not going to ruin that for you here. Uh, however, there may be some minor, minor spoilers, uh, nothing that isn't included in the core set lore, and we will keep it very minor, like names of clan champions and things like that. So um, you don't have to turn this off if you if you don't want spoilers. All right. So I think I mentioned last time, all this takes place in Rokugan, which is basically like a, a it's the fantasy Far East. Uh, so it takes a bunch of different things from different societies. Uh, there's some Korean mysticism and and uh, myth, Japanese social codes, obviously with samurai and bushido and all that. A lot of the government is based on like traditional Chinese uh, central divine emperor and all that. And the geography is pretty close to China as well overall. With obviously you kind of got to squint at it, but anyway, uh, the basic history is that a little over a thousand years ago, the kami, which are basically gods, uh, were flung down from heaven after a battle with their father, Lord Moon, who was eating them uh, to stop them from overthrowing him. And the last of his children named Hanti was hidden away and came back after he grew up, cut his dad's belly open, and all the other kami fell out. So for some reason, they decided that they needed the Greek creation myth in their mythical feudal Japan. But uh, anyway, so uh, after the fight with Lord Moon, they all fall out of heaven. Nine kami total. Eight of them land in Rokugan, which is obviously the main setting. They attract followers and attempt to create a vision of the heavens from which they have been banished. Uh, so they hold a great tournament, and Hanti, the youngest and their savior, the guy who cut open dad for them, won and was named the first emperor. Hanti the 38th, the current emperor, is his direct descendant known as the Son of Heaven. So probably like the biggest metaphysical thing about the setting is that the emperor is literally divine and certain actions of his can change reality. Like if he names you a samurai, it changes what happens to your soul after death, things like that. So, so that was eight of the kami. Uh, Fu Lang, the ninth kami, fell kind of off course and ended up way to the south of where everybody else did. And uh, he actually fell so hard, he punched a hole through the world into Jigoku, which is basically hell. Uh, so he becomes corrupted by a force that would come to be known as the Shadowlands Taint. Uh, and at the dawn of the Empire, as everybody else is having this great tournament, he kind of claws his way out of hell uh, and makes war on the other kami and their followers. Uh, he's eventually cast down uh, during an event called the Day of Thunder uh, by eight mortal heroes. That's kind of a big thing for the setting is that uh, the kami can only be defeated by uh, the combined might of the uh, mortals. So... Uh, so the other seven kami, that's Fulang and Hanti uh, out of the nine, uh, the other seven each found a great clan in service to Hanti. 
So the uh, first up of these is the Lion Clan. Uh, that was founded by Lord Akoto. Uh, and they are the uh, like the right hand, the enforcer uh, for the emperor. They're the most dominant fighting force in the empire and uh, the keepers and creators of uh, Bushido. Uh, so they are super honorable. Uh, in terms of recent history, uh, they have recently entered into a conflict with the Crane over uh, a place called Toshi Ranbo, which is a major city, uh, which is uh, uh, and and also control of this area known as the Osari Plains, which has a ton of the rice production in the empire, which is uh, super important for economic reasons. Uh, they have also entered into a conflict with the Unicorn because the lion are so badass they can fight a two front war. Uh, uh, basically, the Unicorn Clan champion was supposed to marry uh, a uh, Lion Clan member and uh, broke off the engagement for complicated reasons. Uh, their current champion, uh, which is the leader of the clan, is uh, Akoto Totori, who is kind of a pensive guy. He's a general, but more of a scholar than anything. So, yeah. And so the Lion Clan, in terms of their play style... Uh, as you might expect, they are uh, primarily a military-focused clan. Um, they are the the most honorable of the seven great clans. So uh, rather than a, a focus on personal honor, uh, they're focused on being more honorable, having more total honor than their opponent, which gives them some abilities uh, that they don't have if they are equal or less honorable. Um, they're also focused on having an overwhelming victory. So not just winning, but winning by more than a certain amount of strength. And they also rely on uh, more on strength and numbers and total skill than uh, in their dynasty characters over having tricks in their conflict deck. What did you mean by tricks in the conflict deck? So some, some clans have, uh, have the, you know, they're, they're presenting a certain field. You know, they're presenting a certain skill, and then their primary strength comes from what they can do during the conflict phase, uh, playing cards out of their conflict deck. Uh, Lion Clan obviously has a conflict deck, but they focus more on their character abilities and having high stats than they oh, do oh, oh, on I'm their sorry, conflict I'm sorry, I misunderstood deck. that. It's, it relies on strength, and more on strength and numbers than on tricks in their deck. Right. God, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying that they relied on tricks, and I said, no, not really. Do they? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lion is Lion's pretty straightforward overall. They have a bunch of cards that increase their military strength. And then they beat you to death with that. So, I mean Lion Lion is fairly straightforward, but you know, is there anything else that uh if somebody's picking the Lion Clan, you know, what what would make the Lion Clan a right pick for somebody? Uh I think Lion's big on on honor. I think that was mentioned, but I think that's probably at this moment uh the biggest aspiration for a lot of lion players is is honor is so big for that clan that you know their their honor at, at winning military victories is is kind of the epitome of what they're trying to do as a clan so it, it's it's a tough clan to actually start off with right now so i think uh the the tough thing to to get people to sign up for the lion clan to kind of push them in that direction would be showing that at some point there might be an honor victory for them that at some point they might have some cards that actually allow for them to push that military victory as good as the unicorn can right now. Uh, their, their force pumps are interesting and force pumps is a kind of a term just to, to, to increase their military scale right now. Uh, 
but it's a tough clan to start with. It's a fun clan to play. It was one I was definitely interested in out of the core. Out of core is actually quite quite strong. So if you want to really get a good grasp of the uh, simple, basic concepts of this game, I do think the Lion Clan is a really great place to start. Doesn't mean you have to stay there. Uh, they have some really cool weapons that you can include if you start to expand beyond the core box. Uh, but yeah, as was mentioned, the kind of they don't they don't they don't have a lot of tricks, right? They have, they have what their characters say they do. And they basically have one little trick out of their dynasty that lets them bring stuff back from the dead, but that's about it. Yeah. I'm going to taint this with a little bit of bias, meta snapshot bias out of, uh, you know, January, 2019. They're currently like generally considered to be the, the worst clan, but that's not to say that won't change in the future. Uh, I believe somewhere around February 15th, we're expecting a big expansion to come out that has a bunch of new cards. So that might all change. Uh, just to, for reference, they won the, the first the first Worlds tournament. Was a line, a line player won the whole thing. So uh, this game has its, its swings for different clans at various points in time and for certain card releases. Right. That's been a theory of, you know, why they, they're, they're kind of not so great right now is that FFG said, oh, they did too well. So let's Let's maybe hold back on some of the really awesome cards for Lion for a while. So, yeah, we already move on. I can tell Nick is Nick is just just chomping at the bit right now. He wants to get to the next one. Yeah, the, the yeah. Cream, you know what? Actually, best. let's just skip this one. <laughs> I, could, I could just see, I could hear it in his voice. He's like, I I need to I need to talk about. Let's about skip this next. Cards. This next clan isn't important. <laughs> yeah. No. All right. Anyway, so uh, yeah, the. Uh, Next, uh, next one up is the Crane Clan. Uh, so this was founded by Lady Doji. Uh, they are the keepers of culture and law and artistry. Uh, and they are known as the left hand of the emperor. So the, the right hand holds the sword. That's the Lion Clan. The left hand holds the fan in court. So that's the Crane. Uh, they are not so great uh, on the battlefield. Uh, they've got like, you know, small armies uh but basically uh they get by by being uh number one incredibly rich they have a ton of the uh best rice growing land and uh they uh have a lot of political power uh so for a long time the wife of the emperor has been a doji bride uh things like that so uh, and actually uh the imperial city is located uh, pretty much smack dab in the middle of crane lands so uh yeah they they dominate the courts or have in the past. Uh, but in recent years in the story, uh, their lands have been struck by a tsunami, which in turn caused uh, not quite a famine, but like they lost uh, a lot of their rice crop and things like that. Uh, and the uh, Scorpion clan, who we'll talk about in a bit, have taken over a lot of their traditional like uh, central roles in the imperial courts. Uh, so they've been weakened there. Um, and as the game opens, uh, Doji Satsume, the previous uh, Emerald Champion, which is kind of like the Emperor's uh, bodyguard and uh, head of the criminal agency. But anyway, he was a crane, uh, and he uh, died under mysterious circumstances. Uh, his daughter, uh, Doji Hotaru, is the uh, new, relatively new, Crane Clan champion. So she is charge hey i just wanted to uh, hop in and just step up on a slightly pseudo political box for a second and just mention that so you said like the emperor's bride has been a doji family member for a while 
this game has really good representation of women, I, I think. And, you know, a lot of female gamers might have come to expect, you know, uh, most most depiction of women in games isn't that great. I think this game does a really good job of it. Uh, a lot, like the the character breakdown is like 50-50 men to women. There's a lot of totally kick-ass ladies. Um, I'm a father of two girls and that kind of stuff is, is pretty important to me. So just in case you, you know, that matters to you, I wanted to hop in and say that since it, it popped into my mind and we hadn't talked about it yet. Yeah. I, I just got to echo that to some degree. I also say that I think FFG has actually taken that a step further than the original. So I think there was a lot of, a lot of stuff they could have done with the old stuff, the old L5R to not take the torch and kind of keep it going forward with the idea of equality and all that kind of stuff. But I think FFG has taken a nice, like you said, 50, 50 balance on this. So it's uh, the crane clan is a fun one and they have a lot of uh, equality and, and stuff like that. And actually it's not just crane clan. All of the clans in this game definitely uh, have a, the, the world of Rokugan has a lot of equality across the board with, uh, with all, all different uh, <laughs> genders. <laughs> Yeah, so Sorry. agreed not to be binary. No, that's that's a really good point, and we you know, we've actually we've talked about that amongst ourselves. So it's it's a great thing to point out. Uh, hey, Nick, I did want to mention that you uh, you talked about how Crane isn't as strong in war as the Lion Clan, but uh, they do have some of the Empire's best duelists, right? That is true. Yeah. So uh, the uh, one of the artisan schools that they have, uh, it basically. Uh, one of their families, the Kakita, uh, rather than pursuing excellence in all things, will just pick one thing and become the best at it. And uh, the original Kakita, who married Lady Doji, founded this Kakita Dueling Academy and basically set up all of the rules for formal duels in the empire and uh, wrote them all in such a way that his style happened to be the best. Strange how that worked out. But uh, yeah, so that's uh, another big theme. They have a lot of duelists, and especially with the upcoming expansion, there are a ton of cards that are going to support uh, dueling as a means of, yeah, getting getting the advantage over your opponent. So yeah, good call. I'm so excited for Dragon Duels too. Oh my god. I am not excited for Dragon Duels. But uh, <laughs> the, way the, uh, the way that the crane clan plays is is really a in a lot of ways a mirror image to the lion clan they have the political focus where lion has the military focus and the crane clan focuses a lot and nick i'm gonna i'm gonna have you i want you to talk more about this because you've been playing crane for 20 years but um where lion focuses on clan honor crane has a lot of focus on personal honor and things that they can do when they have characters on the board that are honored uh, Nick, do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, so the, the basic crane game plan is most of your uh, people have relatively high glory. So when they're honored, they add that to their political and military stats. So the idea is to just uh, get out a bunch of guys with high glory, get them honored up, and all of a sudden you have basically gotten way more stats than you otherwise would have for the same cost. Uh, and then you exploit that in a couple of different ways. Uh, there's a couple of different cards that um, you can use when you have more honored characters or uh, just in general, I mean, just having more honored characters just as they leave play gives you more honor gain, which you can use to do uh, things like bonsai or assassination. Doesn't sound very nice, but you know, it's, you know, you have honor to spare. You can assassinate some people. 
Exactly. Yeah, that's the key. You got you just got to be looked on better than everybody else. And, yeah, and you uh, still somehow come out looking better. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I'd say Craner, the the clan of they they uh, in terms of overall play, they are kind of like a mid range deck in some ways. They have a lot of uh, options to tell your opponent no. Uh, whether through uh, cards that shut off some of their conflicts or shut off uh, their ability to use their hand and things like that. Uh, they have a cancel uh, in clan, which is relatively rare in this game. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, so you're basically just putting out stats and then telling your opponent that they can't do anything to your stats while you smash their provinces. Okay, let's do dragon. All right. So next up, uh, there's the Dragon Clan. Uh, so they were founded by Lord Togashi, and uh, he basically went to the mountains in the far north of Rokugan. Uh, and uh, they are philosophers and individualists and iconoclasts in a society where everybody else is expected to conform to these rigid social structures. Hippies. H hippies. What's an iconoclast? I don't know that word. Uh, it's basically somebody who bucks the mold, bucks the trend. Yeah. Cool. So the more, you know, so they hang out, as I said, in the mountains to the far North where they contemplate the mysteries of enlightenment in recent years, they've had issues with, uh, there's been a sudden sharp drop in birth rates among both samurai and peasants. And this, uh, in combination with general, uh, unrest has given rise and like they're, they're more willing to, uh, accept kind of different ideas. So there's been the rise of this thing called the Perfect Land Sect, which is a heretical group that preaches that like samurai and peasants aren't that different after all. And samurai are not inherently better and probably shouldn't be in charge of the empire. Blasphemy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Super blasphemous. But the dragon kind of look the other way on this because they're so open to all these different ideas. This is such a meek informant thing though. Like peasants yeah. samurai equality exactly <laughs> they're speaking our language is the um is the is the drop in birth rate supposed to be just in the dragon or is it like everywhere yeah no it's actually been localized to the dragon for the most part uh to the point where like they're adopting people from other clans because they're they're just their numbers have dropped off so much and we don't know what's causing that right now that, so that cold mountain air. we're hoping that this carries into tournament play as well and we start to see fewer dragons in the field <laughs> Yep, agreed. <laughs> agreed. Come on, man. Agreed by everybody that is a non-Dragon player on the podcast. Dude, we're fine. It's fine. So their current champion is uh, Togashi Yokuni, uh, who is a mystic type guy who has a bunch of weird cryptic phrases and sends people out on missions that nobody knows what they mean. And the, uh, the general playstyle of Dragon is basically just have an easy time beating everyone, I think. <laughs> Come on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That is such a good description. <laughs> no, it, it's true. I mean, right now they just have they just have to wait until they get the cards that show up that are the cards that win the game. They need to be able to wait, which means that fast clans that kick their butts first make make for a hard matchup. That is true. Unicorn, I find that, that Dragon is one of the matchups I feel most comfortable with, even though I probably still lose it most of the time. Um, because if I can if I can blitz uh, against a Dragon player and stop them before they see those cards, like Mitsu, 
then I have a shot at winning. I think you, yeah. Unicorn, Lion, and Phoenix all have a pretty good match. And like to, to some extent, Crane does a good job of blitzing me and kicking my butt. Yeah, this is actually a good moment to kind of talk a little bit about why like Dragon Clan has been not necessarily showing so well, I think, at, at events over the past couple of years. Um, and it's not that they like rely on luck so much like we're saying here. It's just that they do need certain cards to come into play and it requires a level of patience from the person piloting the dragon, the dragon deck to get to that point. Uh, they've gotten a lot of really strong cards over the past couple of, of releases. Uh, but in general, the the play style is wait for your good, really good characters to come available, put a ton of fate on them. And as we said in our last episode, extra fate means they last that much longer as long as they can't get killed by the uh, the, the, the the various kill effects in the game. And there's there's not a ton, but there's enough to make you need to be cautious as the, the dragon player with those high faded characters in play sure like don't get lost in uh, the endless plains in unicorn territory that's a yeah if, if you haven't watched our single youtube video right now um if you want to witness that first person and watch nick dance off the screen in excitement and excitement or his feet anyway when i do that <laughs> and walk into an endless plane you go ahead watch that yeah, and, and I think I want to take a second. Every time we talk about a card, because we have new players listening to us, hopefully, is Endless Plains is a card that Unicorn has. It's a province that they can flip over once it gets revealed. Is basically kill one character off of it. The, and, uh, and The attacking player chooses one character that's participating right. and, and discards him. And and the the uh, defender, so the Unicorn player, needs to have the province get broken to do this. But that's kind of a great thing when you have a meta where dragon or other clans are playing these characters we call tall or you know big big characters towering around that towers that are not um that they have a ton of stats they have a ton of attachments they have a ton of force pumps and they're just walking around the field getting multiple attacks and they walk into something like this that has literally no reason to be defended against and boom dead so take a walk yeah so i forever yeah so 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 this is this is kind of like a, the dragon clan is one of i'm trying to think of another one that really can epitomize this i guess obviously crab which we haven't gotten to yet but there's a few clans that have this uh this uh game game state they play which is these towers these these big static characters that on the board they may only have two to three characters but they're like really really good characters and they're gonna just either slice down the opponent's characters or defeat a province so uh that if you like to play that game style that's that's what the dragon clan has to offer yeah and and just to add to that you know dragon so we call it towering or going tall where you have one powerful character and that dragon does that as, as well as any clan in the game right now. But uh, one of the other things that, that Dragon does uh, that I think is pretty cool is the whole, you know, this kind of goes on the whole meditation and enlightenment uh, theme is that they have a lot of abilities to look at their opponent's hand and discard a card or look at their discard pile or their dynasty deck and rearrange the cards or search for a card in their deck. Uh, and I think that's really that's a really powerful effect that other clans don't really have access to right now. Speaking of enlightenment, one thing that they do that <laughs> people forget about because it's sort of is silly and right now it isn't super relevant is that they can they can play games with putting fate onto rings and moving fate on rings around and having that 
any fate on rings matter to their characters, uh, which is all supposed to be like this pseudo enlightenment um, theme. I'm I'm not quite sure how that translates, but um, like they have characters where you can spend a fate to a ring and get something cool, or you can move a ring from move fate from one ring to another ring, um, and you know other characters that say. They have plus X strength for uh, each fate on on rings, on unclaimed rings, or, or things like that. And that's yeah, that's kind of fun. Worth, I, I think it's worth mentioning that when we're talking about like the predominant play styles for these clans, we're talking about kind of the the current meta again, January twenty nineteen. Uh, like so, Crane uh, appears to in the future have some sort of uh, honor running, or at least more control based. Uh, less mid-rangey uh, kind of play style coming. Uh, you know, Dragon has all this stuff with uh, manipulating fate on rings. Uh, Lion has a whole bunch of stuff that kind of suggests a more honor run, uh, but aggressive honor run uh, kind of strategy. And that stuff is all being slowly added over time. So when we're describing the way the clans play today, you know, in a year or two, that might look completely different, or there may be three or four different archetypes uh, to how to play the clans. And when we get to the Phoenix and the uh, Scorpion, I think that becomes a little bit clearer. Is there a sneezing dog in the background? Sorry, no, that's actually my wife. <laughs> I, I apologize. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the unicorn clan lore before Eric uh, digs himself a deeper hole. I don't think that your wife is a dog, Nick. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to leave you on mute. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> this has to stay in, I hope. This is classic. Nick, Nick's off the podcast. Because it's a segue to the unicorn clan, which has uh, been trying to get a dog card printed for years. If you've listened it's to true. the Jane Throne. So... Uh, that's our segue right there. See, yeah, Eric, you helped the, you helped the team out here. Hooray. Segue into Unicorn. All right. So the Unicorn Clan was founded by Lady Shinjo, uh, and her task, uh, the task of her clan, was to explore the world outside the Empire. So they left Rokugan to scout around for a little bit and ended up disappearing for 800 years. So 300 years before the present day, I think the current calendar at the start of the uh, LCG is like 1123 or something like that. I could be off on that. It's in the 1120s. Um, So about 300 years ago, they returned, uh, but they'd been seriously changed by all their contact with the outside world. So they had uh, scimitars instead of katana. They had non-Rokugani titles, like their champion is called the Khan. Uh, and perhaps most significantly, they had the unicorn battle steed, which uh, makes them into the finest cavalry in the empire. Everybody else kind of rode ponies and would get off their ponies before they started fighting. And when the unicorn showed up uh, on full-fledged horses and rode people down, it was kind of a shock. So uh, they are the gateway uh, to the outside world. Uh, they're viewed as gaijin or outsiders. Uh, so a lot of the more proper clans uh, think that they have weird names and weird customs and things like that. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, big things to note is that they have a completely different type of magic. So we'll get into the Phoenix clan next. But uh, the Phoenix magic and, and most magic for um, uh in Rokugan is performed by asking the spirits uh, of, they're called kami. They don't 
mean the same thing as like the kami who founded the clan. But little they're K. these little elemental, yeah, yeah, the little K kami, which are elemental spirits. Uh, everybody else asks them politely to uh, perform tasks for them. Uh, whereas unicorn have a type of magic called meishodo uh, that is basically uh, forcing the kami to do what you want. Uh, so uh, a lot of the rest of the empire, like with a lot of their customs, views this with distrust, especially the phoenix, uh, who consider this uh, a cause of some issues with elemental imbalance that have been going on recently. Um, so they're in a kind of a political conflict with the phoenix over the legitimacy of Meishoto as a type of magic, and uh, they're in a more uh, physical conflict with the lion clan. Um, because uh, basically when they came back 300 years ago, uh, the Lion Clan had taken over all the old unicorn lands. So when the unicorn moved back in, it was this point of ongoing uh, contention between the two. And uh, to solve it 300 years later, uh, the current unicorn clan champion, Shinjo Alton Sarnai, had agreed to join the Lion. But for a uh, variety of reasons, uh, she ends up breaking off the engagement. So she's not going to marry uh, into the Lion Clan anymore. And that gives the Lion an excuse to attack the unicorn. So, yeah, that's where they're at at the moment in the story. Yeah, and so. Unicorn's play style is is um, hyper aggressive. Now I'll be honest, uh, I didn't play during core, um, but I have tried to build a core deck for Unicorn, and it's pretty bad. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> what's well, it's so bad that you didn't realize you had non-core f- <laughs> cards in it, <laughs> right? So I had to do like two or three iterations before I finally got a, a core set Unicorn deck. But uh, he's like, so, oh, so what? Put this Goblin Sneak in there, and that'll be good. I think that'll work fine. <laughs> So uh, I don't necessarily recommend that uh, if you do decide that you want to play Unicorn, I recommend uh, you know buying some other packs shortly after you start playing the game so you can uh, get a feel for what Unicorn's like when they're not terrible. And a lot of the playstyle that I'm going to talk about is there's some mechanics that have been released since Core, so um, it's all going to be mixed in there with some of the current stuff and some of the old stuff. So I apologize for that. But um, in short, Unicorn is a, is a hyper-aggressive militarily focused clan um one of the a couple of the tools that allow them to be this way are the fact that they can actually convert a political uh, conflict into a military conflict and if they win a military conflict outnumbering their opponent they can actually sacrifice a character in order to get another military conflict that round so unicorn has the ability to work really fast against their opponent at breaking their provinces and, uh, and they have a lot of tools that kind of go go with that mechanic of outnumbering your opponent and really riding them down with your cavalry. Um, they have movement tricks, so you can pull guys in and out of conflicts more easily than other clans can. Um, you can pull uh, cavalry units out of your discard pile into a conflict, and you can use uh, some Mishoto magic to take advantage of outnumbering your opponent even when your even when your guys are weaker guys uh, to sort of even the playing field that way. Yeah. There's, there's two things I think about the unicorn clan from uh, FFG's current incarnation of this game that need to be noted is the first is uh, that they have some really cool mechanics that were very cautiously ignored early on this whole movement mechanic, right? Being able to also take multiple uh, conflicts of a military type was sort of cautiously looked at. And I think initially they were very 
uh, worried that this could lead to Unicorn being too strong. And from what I understand, and maybe Nick can chime in here if he if he has experience with this, but I think Unicorn was actually one of the stronger clans during AEG's uh, reign of this game. Uh, and I, I actually recently got a chance to play a little Unicorn of old L5R. Uh, and they seemed like they had all the same tricks that we're seeing in new L5R. And I just wonder if the reason that out of core, the Unicorn was a little lackluster was because of the uh, trepidation that FFG was trying to take with with the design of Unicorn, and and now we're seeing it slowly become the the force that is quite strong, and I, I do think it's going to become one of the stronger clans. It actually has become one of the stronger clans as of the past six to eight months. Yeah, old five R Unicorn uh, was kind of a weird thing. So uh, the old game doesn't compare very easily to this game, but basically, uh, imagine if you had to defend all of your provinces all the time, and I just got to pick one of them to snipe one at a time. So they could often start breaking provinces really early and uh, just go around your defenses. So it doesn't really translate to this game where you can't attack all four provinces at once. You don't have to defend them all at once. But like the um, the movement tricks have definitely uh come over uh into this game uh so you can overcommit forcing an overcommit on defense and then pull your guys out or pull in extra guys if you need to uh and things like that so yeah it's definitely a tricky plan to clan to uh play against just because they can do so much stuff that's kind of unexpected and they're pretty explosive so they can just go bonkers for one turn and break two or three provinces out of nowhere We should mention too that uh, the, that Lion also has the ability to take a, an extra military conflict, um, like Johnny mentioned before, uh, because of their stronghold. It is, it is much harder for uh, so Lions. Uh, so HMT is the is the stronghold that Eric's referring to. Huh? Um, Hisu Mori Torite, which is Hisu the name Mori of a Torite. village that the Unicorn and Lion have been fighting over. Right. So they both have uh, have this stronghold because of the conflict uh, between the two and the, and the territory changing hands, the lion version, they both have the same effect, but the lion version requires the, uh, the conflict to be won by more than five scale. I think it is. Yeah. Five Uh, or more. Mm -hmm. Whereas unicorn is just have more characters than your opponent when you win a conflict and then sacrifice one of them in order to gain the ability to do an extra military. And I, I believe one of the reasons why the unicorn version is, is so much better is that's a much easier condition to obtain. Yeah. And it's because of recent cards that they got available to them, but yes, in general, you know, the line, the unicorn clan has more, they do a better job at going wide at either zero, almost zero cost characters or one cost characters to make it possible to have them actually get that condition to be met. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the Phoenix clan. So uh, the Phoenix clan uh, were founded by Lord Sheba. So the Phoenix are a bit odd. Um, Basically, uh, at the dawn of the Empire, with Fulang beating down the doors, uh, they really needed the assistance of a mortal Shugenja. Shugenja are basically like wizards and priests kind of put together. They're the spellcasters of the setting. Uh, This guy's name was Isawa, and uh, he absolutely had no interest in following uh, Akami. 
so instead, Sheba swore fealty to Isawa, which is the opposite of how it uh, normally works. Uh, and so that's still the case today where the Phoenix clan is actually ruled by a council of five elements, which are the most powerful Shugenja in each element, which all happen to come from the Phoenix clan. There have been throughout history some from other clans, but it's pretty rare. Uh, so uh, the Council of Five Elements uh, are all Shugenja, all incredibly powerful and wise. And so they kind of oversee religion and uh, the the yeah proper worship of the Kami. Uh, they, their other families also are kind of mystics and sages and things like that, uh, just in different ways. Um, so yeah, they are, uh, they're the clan of uh, magic and spellcasting and blowing people up with fire. And big fish. Uh, yes, yes, and they're fishy friends. Uh, the Phoenix recently, uh, their major issue has been uh, an elemental imbalance. So when you rely on the spirits to do what you so kindly ask of them uh, in order for your magic to work, uh, if all of a sudden they start doing completely different things, like you ask someone to warm you up, you know, ask a spirit to warm you up a little bit and he sets the entire room on fire, it's not so great. Uh, so they believe that the uh, unicorn's Meishoto magic may have something to do with it because the unicorn, rather than asking nicely, uh, are uh, basically ordering the uh, spirits to do what they want. And so they think that is, you know, adding up into this elemental imbalance that's making their magic not work. Uh, the current Phoenix Clan champion is uh, Shiba Sukune, but as I mentioned, she's a lot less powerful than most uh, other champions because the uh, actual clan is ruled by a council of the five elements. Um, I don't know all of the names of the uh, five elements uh, masters off the top of my head, so I'll just leave those out. But basically, those are the uh, important people uh, to know. Is, is that... Uh... Shiba Tsukune being like not a super strong champion, actually, do you think that's a thematic thing because of that? Or because the actual champion isn't played very much in the game, right? Like her, her <laughs> and the unicorn's champion, Ultra Sarnai, uh, for the unicorn, and then Shiba Tsukune are champions that I don't really see a whole lot. And pretty much every other clan, I, I see them all the time. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Shiba Tsukune has just like statistical problems she has exactly as much glory as she has base stats so mm -hmm. if she's dishonored she's a zero zero four five uh which is not great and there's a lot more ways to dishonor people in this game than there are to honor them uh, overall especially with scorpion being as prevalent as they were and her effect uh isn't huge a lot of the time um so so what does she do her, just for she, new players uh at the end of the conflict phase, you get to choose and resolve two unclaimed rings. Um, but if there are, if there's only one uh, unclaimed ring, then that's the only one you get. And a lot of times, the reason it's unclaimed is because the effect of it wasn't going to have all that big of a change on the board. So, for instance, at the end of the conflict phase, the water ring bowing or unbowing somebody isn't going to be a huge difference. It might change the favor calculations and stuff like that but yeah I, I, I still argue that i think i think i totally agree with everything you said but i think that now with what we've seen from the meta shift is she is more of a glory uh obtainer and 
in Holder and less of a conf being in conflicts, which is hard to say, but now that we have, <clears throat> at least spoiler-wise, <clears throat> excuse me, from the cards that are that we're going to see released in uh, Children of the Empire, of the Emperor, is that, uh, you know, there are cards that you can play that don't get involved in conflicts that can have a huge board board state effect. Uh, and she is one of those. Um, because of her glory, yes, you're buying her for a lot of fate, but can she can can her effect of resolving the ring of the rings that have not been uh, claimed be of beneficial enough va value to win? Uh, it's tough to argue her in a core box, but I still think I've seen her more recently uh, in decks than I thought I would. So I don't I don't know if that's because of the shift in the way that Phoenix is playing, but, but um, she got four glory. Yeah. Yeah, she's uh, four political, four military, four glory. Yeah, okay. So anyway, when she's honored, she's an eight, eight, which is crazy. That is one of the core mechanisms for Phoenix, though, is, is high glory. And right. that can be a liability, but it can also be an asset. Uh, where your characters can can be less expensive to put out. They have low stats or medium stats, um, but they can become really, really powerful characters if you can get them honored. Yeah, and I think that's uh, another thing worth noting is that uh, Phoenix is one of the two clans that so far have had a uh, clan pack. So that's uh, a release uh, specifically devoted to giving them a bunch of new cards and new options. In particular, they got a new stronghold out of it. So uh, their core set stronghold would uh, give a character plus two glory. Uh, their uh, stronghold from the pack gives uh, them the ability to replay spells from their discard pile. Um, so it uh, ends up going down a completely different road. So there's kind of this branch in how Phoenix Clan plays. Uh, right now, I'd say the stronger one overall is just a bunch of spells and things like that and recurring them from your uh, discard pile. Um, but there is this other uh, type of Phoenix that uses that glory, uh, will honor up their own guys and then give them the boost or dishonor opponents and give the opponent's characters bonus glory so that it's a bigger stat penalty. Um, so uh, that one plays a little more controlly and tends to use a fair number of courtiers, uh, whereas the other uh, the spell-focused deck really only cares about Shugenja, and anything else it takes is just because it helps their Shugenja out. I uh, sat down against uh, Devin, a local player of ours, for the first time against uh, playing Phoenix ever besides Johnny and Corset, and he did that to me. He he dishonored somebody, and he no he he gave me extra glory on a character, and I was like, why did you do that? <laughs> and it blew my mind when he dishonored me, and I was like, oh no! <laughs> it, was, it was a big learning moment for me. Yeah, and the, the last thing I'll say about the, the comment I made earlier with with um, the clan champion for Phoenix is that. Yeah, um, her having high glory and having her ability trigger is kind of useful. The difference is that you don't have kind of the main card that gives you the benefit in the core box, which is uh, Censure. So while obtaining the favor is good from a stat boost perspective, it's not amazing from an overall game state perspective going forward for turns after. So, um, you know, we're trying to focus our initial podcast here with uh, core box stuff. So she is actually quite good core box, but she's also quite 
bad core box yeah. because of her glory. And I think Nick kind of started off the whole discussion with her uh, with that point. And I think we just want to end on that from the Phoenix clan. The clan champion for her, for them is really interesting. She's really cool, but uh, don't get too jazzed about playing her as a Phoenix player when you, when you use her out of core box. And for anyone wondering what uh, this card censure that Adam mentioned is, it's uh, if you gain the favor, the Imperial favor, you can censure is a cancel. You can cancel an opponent's event when they play it. Crab? So, well, before we move on to Crab, uh, one more thing about the Phoenix Clan that's really important in how they play is that a lot of their abilities are tied to, uh, to specific ring elements. Uh, choosing, choosing a ring and during a conflict with that element, your characters get stat boosts or uh, certain other effects happen. And that really ties into to the lore of Phoenix being all about the, the different elements and magic and spells. So I just wanted to touch on that briefly. Yeah, yeah, they're probably the, they're definitely actually the clan that cares the most about, you know, all right, well, this is a water conflict or, you know, this is a fire conflict. They have a lot of cards that really, really care about that kind of stuff. So They also have tricks yeah. that let you like, you know, I have take a claimed ring and swap it out for an unclaimed ring and whatever, or consider you are considered to have claimed more than one kind of ring when you don't. Um, not that those are super prevalent everywhere, but those are, they're all there too. Yeah, they're the, they're the Rube Goldberg machine of, of ring effects, basically. If you, if you want to get some fancy effects with the rings, you know, play Phoenix. And Phoenix has a really, really interesting play style. I, they are unique in what they do because of the, the fact they, they use the rings in unique ways. Clickety. All right. Crappy, cra- not crappy. Wow. Crap. Never mind. The Crab Clan. <laughs> I think was what Eric was trying to say. Uh, the Crab Clan are next up. So they were founded by Lord Hida, who went south where there were rumors of growing darkness. Uh, basically what they found uh, in the south was Fu Lang, uh, who had fallen down there and opened up the pit into Jigoku uh, and tainted that whole land around, which became known as the Shadowlands. Uh, so uh, they ended up the front line of that war. Uh, so, uh, endurance and courage are kind of like they're, uh, the center of all crab life. Uh, they are the builders and engineers and architects of Rokugan. Uh, so they, uh, are the defenders of the Southern border. And even after Fuleng was defeated, the, uh, portal that he'd opened to Jigoku, uh, was still open. So for the last thousand years, they have been fighting a never-ending war against oni which are demons uh goblins and ogres and actually the uh shadowlands taint itself so if you spend too much time in the shadowlands you will end up tainted by it and basically uh go to jigoku when you die and become a horrible monster in the meantime uh so the uh central uh element of crab life is the great wall the caillou wall so that is a huge wall basically think great wall of china that goes uh the uh most of the length of the southern border of rokugan so uh in recent years uh attacks along the wall have grown uh while support from the empire has reduced uh so rokugan's falling into all these little internal fights uh over you know what's the right type of magic and who should own hisumori toriday and things like that uh and in the meantime the crab are getting worn down by 
increasing pressure from the Shadowlands. Uh, Jade, which is actually like a magical uh, thing in this uh, universe, its prime uh, use is that it's actually the tears of Lady Sun. Like she cried when her children were cast down and it turned into Jade. And uh, that uh, Jade holds off the effects of the Shadowlands taint. Uh, but the crab are starting to run out. Uh, a lot of their supplies in the empire aren't producing as much. The taxes and things that they used to rely on uh, aren't giving them as much as they need. So they are running short of manpower and supplies. Uh, Hida Kasada is their current clan champion who is like, he's called the great bear. He uh, is not one for mincing words uh, or really niceties of any sort but uh he just wants to get the job done and for anyone uh that thinks this story sounds familiar uh the crab clan is basically the night's watch uh from game of thrones um yeah i think actually john snow's in in it right he's in he's in this he's in rokugan (laughs) probably yeah Um, if he was gonna go anywhere it'd be the crab clan it's a little too uh it, it might be a little bit too far south for him, but uh, but I mean the, the story it's it's got so many parallels. I mean um, reincarnation. If you read the old L five R stuff, whoa spoilers. Well, yeah, but I'm just can. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not <laughs> twenty year old spoilers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you're a big Game of Thrones fan and and you really you like the Night's Watch and that speaks to you, uh, you will you'll probably at least want to take a look at the crab clan. I should note L5R was out before game of Thrones by about a year. So, uh, George R. R. Yes. Martin stole from L5R. Stole and vice versa. That is fact. Yep. Fact. But it's the South. Sorry, go ahead. That's true. It's completely it's different. Opposite. South is North. <laughs> North is South. So what's the big thing? So crabs, so crabs, I think they, uh, as a, as a clan play style, they're big on not dying, right? <laughs> they have all of these cards that let them stick around and their characters don't die. So, hey, guess guess what clan loves to borrow stuff from the Crab Clan? It's the Dragon Clan. Everybody. Everybody, everybody loves does. not dying. It's a universal yeah. trait. Right. <laughs> but the Crab Clan specifically has, a, uh, I'm thinking, three cards at least, right? Three cards that... Uh, that, that help them keep their characters around. So they can actually fate their fate their characters initially a little bit less in value. Uh, and then later on in different phases of the game or different turns, actually put attachments or use uh, holdings to keep their characters around. So they have kind of a nice little... I call it sneaky way of keeping characters in play. Uh, and if you don't have the answer as the opponent against a crab clan, you might not be able to get rid of those characters. So that, that Casada that's still sticking around where he's got both great stats and uh, an ability that is really annoying. Uh, and we can talk about his ability if we want, but, but the point is like, he's a character that he's their clan champion that can stick around for three or four turns when maybe the crab clan player only put one or two fate on him. And so uh, the crab clan has kind of a deceiving way of keeping their characters in play. And they do the tower play 
uh, quite a bit, but just a little bit differently than, say, the Dragon Clan would. Yeah, so uh, crab play super defensively, which kind of fits with like the theme of uh, you know defenders of the wall and all that. Uh, so their stronghold gives them a bonus on defense. Uh, they have a bunch of characters that are stronger in one way or another on defense. Uh, and the basic game plan is to uh, just wear your opponent down. So they're going to throw a bunch more resources at each conflict when they're trying to break uh, than they would against somebody else. So uh they will use you know way more resources and you're just sitting there kind of tanking it uh until they have exhausted themselves and then you can swing back with kind of overwhelming force when you do finally kind of outvalue them and wear down their hand and all this so yeah yeah that's that's kind of their big way of playing they also have a um a focus since they're the you know the builders of the wall they they have a focus on holdings which are like little cards that you can't play as characters that pop up on your um your provinces and so they they have a card called rebuild which lets them just go into their dynasty deck and fetch one of those out whatever they want or no it's it's in their discard pile right yeah um, yeah let them replay it from the discard pile right, and then iron mine is another big one that lets them it's one of those saves so when somebody's going to die they play this iron mine and thematically i guess they come out of the iron mine i don't know how that helps them um maybe they got some iron to make armor out of the iron mine just in time um and 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 the other card is the uh the way of the crab is kind of a a big card that needs to be discussed uh we don't need to go into all the details but it's basically a card that kills one of their crab characters and kills one of their opponent's characters and you get to choose as the opponent but if you only have one it dies yep so the sa- that's like yeah. a self-sacrifice sub-theme that they have going because they're sitting there defending the wall while no one else is doing it. So they sacrifice themselves and then somebody else has to die. Um, uh, there's also another little sub-theme of like the Shadowlands taint coming in um, to their clan and making their characters berserk. Uh, or at least I think that's what that's supposed to represent. There's this trait called berserker and a handful of their cards are keyed off of that keyword, uh, which is... yeah, Lord- Lore-wise, Berserker is just kind of actually along the same lines as the sacrifice theme, which is like the idea that the the uh, crab are so devoted to taking out the Shadowlands that they don't care about their own personal losses. It's all about winning the long war and all that. So there are a bunch of Berserkers who are tainted. Um, uh, they're in a legion called the Damned, and basically they just get thrown out on the front lines to die. Uh, but the like oh, berserking is kind of like just a normal thing for crab to do, even if you're not tainted. Crab crab life is hard, man. That sounds rough. Yeah, and and Nick mentioned it in the lore overview, but the crab is is really unconcerned with the the rest of the empire. You know, their job, their one job, is to defend the wall from the shadowlands and the taint. So another thing that sub theme that the crab clan has is that they have very low glory on a lot of their characters so they're not concerned with getting honored or dishonored which is a little bit different than than most of the other clans yeah if you uh fun thing about that they, they just they're not flashy right so if you look at there's a bunch of there's a card for each clan called the seal of the phoenix seal of the crane seal of the dragon if you go th- through and read the flavor text on all those cards um they're all like signed the you know enigmatic champion of the dragon the whatever like they list all these titles for everybody to gashi or whatever um and the dragon or the the crab clan is just like 
signed by Hideo Sada. It's, it's just like, it's just me. Shut up and do your job. And I, yeah, I like they, they put out a series of letters from the clan champions before the last winter court. And like, you know, the crane one was all this long flowery language about how great the crane are. And the crabs was basically like, I'm going here on this day to do this thing. <laughs> Don't die. <laughs> End of letter. It's like if Ron Swanson were a clan <laughs> champion or something. <laughs> I wish I could do his voice. I can't. My wife, my wife, oddly enough, kid. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that. Can we get her on uh, next episode? Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> have her have her read Casada's letter in Ron Swanson's she could do voice. It in, she could do it in Ron Swanson's voice with a Russian accent. Wow. So I think that kind of covers the crab clan and uh, Adam's wife. Uh, <laughs> yes. And her accent ability, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, so then I think. So, so go ahead. I was going to say, if, if you've stuck with us this far, we have one left. So. And it's the, the, the best. We saved the best for last, best as false. they say. Best for second. Anyway, uh, so uh, the last one up is Scorpion Clan. So they were founded by Lord Bayushi. So he looked at everybody else. You know, they had defenders, they had the army, they had the artists and all this. Uh, and he said, uh, you know what, Hanti? I will be your villain. So the Scorpion Clan are uh, masters of deception and intrigue. Uh, they wear masks all the time. Basically, people were complaining early on that they couldn't tell when Scorpion were lying to them. So the Scorpion said, well, you know what? We will uh, we'll just wear a mask whenever we're going to lie to you. And they wear masks all the time. So you always have to assume they're lying. Uh, they are schemers and meddlers uh, and home of the most uh, feared shinobi, basically ninja. Uh, so all the other clans fear them, and their role is basically to uh, make sure that none of the other clans can band together and conspire against the emperor. Um, but uh, in recent times, the scorpion themselves have been a bit divided. So the crane have kind of fallen off in power, like I was talking about earlier, uh, and the scorpion have risen in the imperial courts as a result. Um, but a lot of the clan doesn't like the fact that they're kind of stepping out of the shadows and into the limelight. So they would rather return to the shadows, uh, both for their own good, because they got a lot of ugly secrets and uh, things in the closet that they don't want revealed, and to better keep an eye on the empire and make sure that uh, they can fulfill that role as uh, the spies and saboteurs. Yeah, one uh, thing, the, uh, sorry, just to, to expand on that a little bit, one thing I thought was really cool was in, uh, I think it was in the first lore where they talk about how the role of the Scorpion clan was to be the Kuroko, which in Japanese theater are the stagehands who dress all in black. So they're unseen, but they're, uh, they're one of the most important parts of the play because if the stagehands aren't doing their job well, then, then the play is not. I got to read more of this well. lore, man. That sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. The lore's amazing. This, this game's. It's, it's so, so good. The recent Emerald Empire book for the RPG, highly recommended. Anyway, uh, their uh, current champion is Bayushi Shoju, uh, who is um, he's uh, kind of the leader of the faction within the Scorpion who want to step back a little bit from the, uh, the center. Uh, he has a withered right arm uh, and still manages to be a really amazing fighter. Uh, 
he's he's a really interesting character actually overall so i I don't say that about many people outside the crane clan but he's he's pretty cool yeah because you're a you're a closet scorpion player we all know look i played a scorpion (laughs) deck once it was it was okay look your blue is very red it's okay that's true i splash scorpion so so i can get access to some fun cards i mean uh no crane fine How how long have you been not having fun? Like, did you say like sixteen years? What? Yeah. Well, look. I mean, when we get into proper do nothing and win the game anyway, Crane, then you'll see. Then you'll see me grinning all the time. Doing nothing, you'll be having a blast. (laughs) Eric, exactly. You don't understand what it's like to have to do something in this game. Oh God, damn it! See, that's the other thing about uh, if you're thinking about picking dragon. You have to have some thick skin because everyone's going to give you shit for playing the super strong clan that apparently uh, an infant could play and and win. I've heard that so many times that like dragon players basically need to and I quote Look, I've I heard quote, that I quote not eat their own deck and they'll do fine. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard that if if certain crane uh, certain dragon players didn't tell the rest of the dragon player base to breathe, every dragon player would stop breathing. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i've heard god so yeah i think what you're really hearing is uh people get a little attached to their clans and clan identities and uh <laughs> you tend to form these uh stereotypes uh of other clans based on their clan identities for instance uh adam plays scorpion so i uh always know where my wallet is when he's in the room <laughs> you know things like that so uh yeah so how does scorpion yeah. clan actually play adam yeah so actually i have been thinking about this because you know i had a bunch of other clans that talked to before we got to got to scorpion um i actually think we're like the most turmoiled deck right now the most turmoiled clan from a from a play perspective because we've actually gone through a couple of things so in core box we had this like unknown identity and that Id- that identity did get fairly quickly identified within like six months of the game so right after the first winter court which is the worlds which is usually november uh so two or three months uh three months after gen con which when the game released uh you know we had the lion clan win and scorpion was like what are we doing here right so uh shortly after that we actually had scorpion start winning really well this was been about a year ago and i think uh, almost to this to this weekend the the cork event uh was when scorpion started to really take off flight and do really well um a lot of that was attested to the play style that got kind of coined as the drop bear play style uh and what that means is it's uh the idea that your your conflict characters are the the bread and butter that makes the uh, effectiveness of our decks work. So we were playing the maximum number of conflict characters and they were coming out of the conflict deck. So we were playing very little out of our dynasty. Uh, drop bears is an Australian term. It's the, there's an animal out there and yada, yada, yada. I don't know the whole full story, so but it's an Australian term. There's bears. I think, yeah, there's bears. My but understanding the, is they're quite deadly. They're quite deadly, exactly. Drop bears, uh, in it, specifically, or just yes. bears? No, no, drop bears <laughs> specifically. See, like a normal bear is on the ground. At least <laughs> you can see them coming. But when they just fall on you out of trees, <laughs> it's extra deadly. It's extra deadly. Um, and and at the time, I think the player base for Scorpion was very 
uh, very much hoping for the ninja aesthetic, right? You wanted the shinobis. And uh, as Nick had kind of given us the description of, the shinobi is the ninjas of the Empire. But in Rokugan, shinobi is actually kind of like a blasphemous term. Like it's not a term that you're, number one, they're technically not supposed to exist. And by edict of the emperor, they're, they're, they're means of fighting, which is backstabbing, poison, all that kind of stuff is actually outlawed. So if you've read the latest uh, Scorpion book, which came out during the uh, Scorpion pack, I think it released in October of 2018. Uh, it's about shinobi to some to a large degree and 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 how they are actually infiltrating the uh and, and some would argue that not as well could have been written better uh but the shinobi are not is not something that the emperor uh even acknowledges exist exists uh, so so uh let's go back again a year ago from, from lcg perspective the gameplay the drop bears became the mechanism that people played scorpion with uh, so they were playing characters out of their conflict deck. They were playing characters that had um, the covert keyword. Uh, and that, that played out nicely. It wasn't always winning games. Not necessarily. But it was actually a nice kind of surprise element to the Scorpion playstyle. Well, that kind of snowballed. And then now you had cards that got released during the Imperial Cycle. And a little bit during the an Imperial Cycle was about, I want to say, March of 2018. Uh, the Imperial Cycle, and then you had the Phoenix Pack, which is after that, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the idea was that you could play Scorpion cards so passively that they, over time, dishonored the opponent. So characters would come into play, they would do their thing, they would be passive, they would force conflict, maybe the opponent could not defend, they would then lose a conflict, they wouldn't uh, have defended so they'd lose an honor. The Scorpion playstyle turned into a dishonor effect. And so for the past year, we've seen Scorpion play where we dishonor characters out. That has changed as of recently during the um, current changes to the restricted list, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so Scorpion overall plays currently in a very weird state. We don't know what our state is. We want to play this ninja style. We want to play this proactive um, killing guys getting rid of characters off the field but um, right now I, I can't I can't give you a clear definition yeah, to, I always feel to how as, we play when I play against Scorpion having never played as Scorpion when I play against them I always feel that Scorpion is uh, a very reactive clan they're all about controlling the state of the board and denying their opponents the ability to do the things that they want to do they steal your stuff they, right. they dishonor your guys. They murder them sometimes. <laughs> right. And one, the, the, of my, one of my first games is Unicorn against Scorpion, which I think is a, a fairly tough matchup. I didn't know about the card. Uh, it's called Calling in Favors, and it steals an attachment off of your opponent's player, and you put it on one of your own players. And I played a card called Talisman of the Sun, which allows me to move my opponent off of my province onto another one. And I thought I was being clever. I was going to move my opponent off of my stronghold onto my fourth unbroken province. And I got that instantly stolen from me and I couldn't break my opponent's province because they just are their stronghold because they just moved me off with my own attachment. 
Scorpion is a mean clan. And then, yeah, we play. It's a control. The, the the decks are control style. We try and manipulate the field in ways that aren't specifically in the uh, military sense, not necessarily in the political sense. Even though our stats are definitely favored in the political side, uh, but overall, we're definitely a control deck style. Um, up until this point. I would say that that control element was a means to winning the game. As of lately, because of some of the changes in what our restricted list is, we have uh, less tools to allow for that. So we have to actually go a little bit more on breaking provinces, getting to that stronghold, and actually winning through through that condition. So um, as of 2019, January 2019, I think that we have actually quite a varied play style. There's people that play uh, one of the new strongholds called Kaiden Bayushi, uh, but there's a bunch of people still play the arguably best uh, stronghold in the game, uh, City of the Open Hand. And uh, the thing about Scorpion is we have quite a bit of variety, and we do have the flexibility of having a lot of fun with different deck styles. So if you want to play different styles, in this game, you can actually kind of get a lot out of playing the Scorpion Clan. Yeah. Um, so uh, one thing that uh, Adam mentioned a couple of times there uh, that I think is worth uh, bringing up uh, is the restricted list. Uh, this is one of the methods that FFG has for trying to balance the game or just make the game more fun. Uh, and basically, uh, it takes uh, cards that are maybe a little bit above uh, the curve. Um, and says that you can only have one, uh, you, you basically choose one card from the restricted list. You can run an entire playset of them, so three in a deck, uh, but you can't have any of the other ones. So a the couple of Scorpion Clan cards are on there. I think three uh, Scorpion Clan cards, which is the most from any clan. Um, uh, dragon. Uh, oh, well, yeah, that's true. Tied with Dragon, right? Well, I don't know if you count Pathfinder's Blade, but... <laughs> the card is crab uh, even though no no crab has ever put it in a deck but uh yeah so uh that's uh what ab's talked about is so the uh, restricted list changes over time and uh, it's actually in that rules reference guide that we talked about uh early on uh in this episode uh so they can change that to kind of uh bring things up uh you know if they notice that certain cards are uh, a bit of a problem. So, uh, because so many of Scorpion's kind of power cards ended up on there, the the archetype that they've been playing for uh, a little over a year uh, is a lot harder to pull off nowadays. So that's what Adams uh, talked about with the restricted list and how that changed uh, how the clan played. Okay, so I think that's um, pretty much everything we had to say. Uh, congratulations for making it to the end, everyone who has. You get a cookie. Go get yourself a cookie. Um, the uh, the upcoming forecast for this podcast, we 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 did this you know about a week after the first one, mostly because we're just too excited. Um, I don't know that I'll be able to keep up producing these uh, once a week, but we're we're hoping for once every other two weeks. And if you get one sooner, then congratulations, you have uh, some guys talking to listen to. Um, we have some really cool stuff for the works. Like I mentioned, we're working on graphics for videos. Uh, we have other, you know, we have a YouTube channel where we mentioned a couple of times um, this Thursday, I'm going to try and record um, a video at our local game store, Midgard Comics and Games. 
um, and in preparation for next month's elemental championship um, in, was it in Saugus Mass? What's it? It's Battleground Games? Yep. Yep. Saugus yep. Mass. Battlegrounds in Saugus. Um, so we're going to try and be technically ready to either stream or at the very least record that elemental championship. Uh, probably just the top cut for life commentary because we all want to play. But um, that, that's that's something that's in the works and we're hoping to try and do. Um, yeah, so I think that's about and, it. And we're all going to be there, right? Yeah, um, yep. Yes. Yep. Cool. My wife oh, has yeah. given me permission nice. to go. So we got to get t-shirts made is what you're telling me? Can we do that? <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I have hoodies and I have all of the goodies that we need from other podcasts I've done, we got to do one for this one because I we're going to uh, Elements Championship. We gotta we gotta have something. We gotta have some so flair. Cool. Let's do it. Rip the team. Cool. Yeah. He says not ironically. I don't know. Anyway, fine, fine. We can have pins. We, we gotta do. Oh pins no, no, the shirt's not awesome. Um. <laughs> okay, so I guess I, I can't wear my uh, my little pony shirt. Then I. You do need a My Little Pony shirt. I found something perfect. There's a <laughs> unicorn with like a rainbow and a castle in the back. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, Put that under the hoodie, it'll be fine. <laughs> you can take it out when you like. You play something. I don't know. You like unleash the jit, and you like take your hoodie off and you know. Hulk smash. <laughs> Display your dominance. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Um, and I guess we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Meek Informant. You can find us on the web at www.facebook.com forward slash the meek informant and can subscribe to our podcast through google's podcast app apple's podcast app via itunes or podbean at the meek forward slash feed xml want to continue the conversation about today's topic or any of our other content we can be reached via our facebook page or email themeekinformant at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter account, at meekinformant. Our YouTube or Twitch accounts can also be found by searching for The Meek Informant. If you would like to help others find us, please consider writing a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to our show.